0: Welcome to Intergalactic Tarbush, Eclectic Conversations from the Manor, with Iyad al-Baghdadi and me, Ahmed Gatnash. We talk about politics, activism, tech, spirituality, mental health, and more. This episode was recorded the day before Russia's grand invasion of Ukraine began, so it's not exactly news material. But we talked about Russia's activity going back to Syria, uh, zooming out to the bigger picture. We also speculate about Putin's intentions and thinking. Uh, trying to understand the way different geopolitical actors incentives intersect and at the end we also talk a little about cancel culture hey man how's it going how are you doing not bad so i think uh we're gonna have to start with russia today because it's what everyone's thinking about
1: well it's it's kind of brave to to predict uh and uh we don't know what's going to happen next but uh let's say that a lot of this is a thought exercise. We don't know what what's what's going to happen next and uh, I just uh, right before we came on, I was on Twitter and I saw that there is uh, that um, the U.S administration uh, has informed the Ukrainians that they're expecting an invasion in two days. Now we don't know what it's going to look like we don't know if it's going to be basically in the eastern of the country you know Donbas or whether it's going to be, Essentially, uh, you know,
0: uh, Putin trying to take all of Ukraine. Hmm. And this is basically something that's been brewing for several months, like since October or something.
1: Uh, well, yeah, I think the, the crisis started really last uh, last year, but it's escalated very quickly since then. Um, I did see that, you know, in the, in the knowledge base, you had been thinking about... Uh, the second and third order effects of that, and you know what it's what it's going to mean, and you had some really yeah, interesting. So this is notes really.
0: This is really coming out of like basically uh, flashbacks to the middle of the last decade when the whole Russian intervention in Syria happened, and the consequences were absolutely colossal. Like they changed uh, the face of democracy in in the West, um, but none of them were direct consequences. So like the the really strong one was basically. Putin's bombing created massive refugee waves, uh, which overwhelmed Europe, and it also created a fertile space for extremist organizations, which led to the emergence of ISIS. And both of those two things led to a really emboldened far right, which would po- which could point to these extremists and these refugees coming, and frighten everyone into voting for populism, um, which led to europe's lurk rightwards uh brexit even the u.s's uh trump election so let's go Um, let's get what i'm really thinking is let's go
1: over that argument first uh before we get into the ukraine stuff because we do mention this in our in our book uh but then it's not the subject of our book so we did mention it in passing but maybe this is an opportunity for us to really uh kind of present the case the idea here is that uh you know, what happens in one country, when one major country in the world breaks, it has ripple effects that sometimes are unpredictable. And so we kind of saw it because we were very plugged in into the Syria space uh, all the way from 2011 with the Arab Spring uprisings. I do remember that uh, the, what happened in Libya too had a very big impact about what happened in Syria. Uh, but then that's another, that's, that's, that's another co- whole new conversation. Uh, But essentially, just like you said, um, there is is a line of causality that you can draw between what, like the breakage of Syria and the breakage of, you know, basically the surge of right-wing populism that happened two years later, because two things came out of that, the refugees and ISIS. And both of these things arguably contributed to, first of all, in 2016, the Brexit vote, and then it was 2015, 2016, can't remember. And then um,
0: uh, Trump. And then the world changed after that. I think the only unusual thing about this case is that it seems so clear to us. Um, I think th- these kinds of uh, chain effects are really common, but they're often obscured, or there's several steps down the line, or there's um, like uh, disputed causality. Um, but otherwise, I think these kinds of effects are all, all around us. Um, and this, this just feels like one of those big events where we should really be looking out just in case there's something that's starting startlingly obvious once you look
1: well wh- while you're speaking now i just realized one thing uh i realized that in my conversation because i i do co- I, like over the years i did mention this several times to uh to uh to the to my audience and a lot of them are americans and a lot of them are, are associated with the american left with the democrats and they you know, one one other line of causality that we that's that's probably is very poignant and is under under underexplored. What happened in 2013, not 2015, 2013, when Obama drew that red line, the US administration drew drew that red line to Assad, uh and basically said, Don't cross this line, don't use chemical weapons, and if you do, there's gonna be consequences. Uh and then he crossed it, and then Uh, the US administration, instead of creating consequences for Assad, uh, essentially invited Russia to be the guarantor of this kind of the the chemical disarmament of Assad, which actually never actually happened. I mean, he continued to use chemical weapons, uh, you know, regardless. But then this kind of legitimized uh, Russia, basically almost legitimized Syria as kind of this is your zone of. This is basically your zone of interest. This is your zone of influence. Come here and and you know like basically help us keep the peace. And you can again draw a line of causality between that and between how Putin is was you know was much more emboldened in twenty fifteen and then far more emboldened now. You can actually draw that line of causality because keep in mind two thousand thirteen uh, Syria two thousand fourteen Ukraine two thousand fifteen Syria and
0: now Ukraine again. So I've seen the argument that the US administration's handled this one a lot more competently, um, that they've been a lot firmer with the lines and they've been more active in sending assistance to Ukraine, for example, and they've been quite strong with the sanctions lines. Whereas in the Syria situation, they basically never intended to do anything about it. As soon as uh, Assad and Russia crossed that line, they backed down and tried to find excuses to not act. Um, but the problem with that is, When you draw a line and then you fail to enforce it, uh, you kind of become pushover. People get used to the idea that they can, you know, cross the lines without consequence. And arguably, even the stuff he's doing now, almost 10 years later, is Putin still applying the lessons he learned then?
1: Yeah, that's very, that's very useful, uh, actually, to understand this because part of me, I was actually like, Kind of my, my early my, my early morning kind of uh, shower thoughts. Uh, I was like think about this in the shower, uh, and I was thinking that maybe Putin did not intend this did, did not intend this to get this far. Maybe Putin, like you, like you just said, had this you know realized that this has worked for me before. Whenever I threaten a major war, they back down because they don't want instability, so they back down and so maybe what happened this time is that he did not intend this to escalate to this point he thought that by mobilizing all of these troops uh nato and the west and ukraine itself are going to back down uh, or ukraine basically is going to basically find itself with with its back to the wall and no support and you know kind of be it'll be strong armed into saying yes you know whatever you know wh- whatever you need because we don't have any allies uh, i think uh, he he's facing a different administration, an administration that uh was able to. I mean, as you know, we're not exactly fans of Biden's foreign policy, and we criticize it all the time. But on this particular note, in this particular file, they seem to be more competent than previous administrations in handling Putin.
0: So he's basically packed himself into a corner because of a miscalculation. It seems that he's he's now in a position where like it it doesn't benefit him to do a war because he'll end up stuck in Ukraine uh fighting an insurgency and if he backs down it's basically humiliating for him domestically and also teaches his opponents that he can be intimidated in a way so there's there seems to be no win here
1: i mean uh in a way uh i kind of understand the geopolitical element i kind of understand that yeah i mean and you know R- russia as currently, as you know, with its current borders, does not have defensible geographical borders. You know, so it's basically you were, very flat.
0: You were showing me this with the with the topological maps of Europe. That if you look at yeah. a map of Europe that just has the mountain ranges um Europe from Russia across to like the middle of Europe is completely flat land um and therefore there's the reason Russia has so many thousands of tanks is because it has several thousand miles of border across just basically flat empty farmland uh that isn't easily defensible
1: so I think I think I actually looked at the number of tanks and I think that Russia has 25,000 tanks uh while the next most country is the United States has 8,000 tanks you can see the big difference um and yeah, I mean partly my my interest in this kind of came from watching a lot of documentaries about the Napoleonic Wars and then about World War one World War II and about how you know uh, Russia has never has not been invaded successfully in recent history in, in modern history from Europe um and you know every every time there's an invasion, there's always kind of the same so so essentially um essentially, he is kind of right that for russia to be geopolitically stable and sustainable it needs kind of a buffer zone but then the way he's going about it putin is through hard power hard you know kind of strong arming a lot of uh, you know everybody between him and germany uh to kind of like basically submit to us this is not how you do it in this in in the 20 in the 21st century I mean, people people in Estonia and the Baltic states or in Ukraine or in Poland, they have their own agency, they have their own history, they have their own cultures, they have their own, you know, democracies. Uh, if you want to win them to your side, you should have presented a model, you know, a, a model for what Russia is that kind of makes people want to take your side.
0: That's the thing. When I saw this map, I, I then switched from the topological map to the uh, political map, nation-state borders. And between Russia and th- those mountain zones of, uh, like, a naturally defensible border is this zone of uh, states like Ukraine, like the Baltics, etc., visually Eastern Europe. Um, and the whole, like, the, the, the explanation being given for this whole uh, conflagration is that uh, Putin feels very threatened by the approach of NATO towards Russian borders, the fact that it's in uh, that it's introducing new members and expanding eastward. Um, and the first thing that struck me was, surely the way you'd counter this is by developing some kind of uh, cultural ties with these countries, developing economic ties to make them more economically integrated with you so that they don't want to fight, um, instead of just basically trying to bully them into submission and making them resent you and long even more for like NATO protection.
1: Yeah I mean uh, he kind of again I mean the, th- the thing that I'm kind of criticizing here with most uh, mainstream coverage of the crisis is really that uh, so he comes along and he says I have geopolitical reasons right uh, initially at least uh, before he go, he, he goes completely unhinged and he talks about the Kievan Rus and and you know and history and like his his own contorted internationalist kind of view of history but un- until then you know initially he's like you know there's a geopolitical reasons now a lot of commentators like no bullshit you don't have geopolitical reasons uh, and this I kind of disagree with he does have geopolitical reasons but then we have to remember he had 20 years 20 years he's been in power for 20 years one form of the other or you know under one title or the other what kind of Russia did he build I mean he could have made a Russia which is an economic powerhouse, you know. He could have made a Russia, Russia, which is a soft power, uh, you know, a soft power, uh, you know, a, a, a soft superpower, you know, and, and fueled the by region. the
0: well-known genius of uh, many Russians in fields like mathematics and physics and computer exactly. science.
1: Exactly. I mean, uh, when when we speak to to Gary Kasparov, for example, who's who's you know a, a friend and uh, uh, and you know uh, we, we meet him you know almost every year at the Oslo Freedom Forum. Uh, he makes that clear you know that you know he's, he he's he's an ex presidential candidate he he ran for president in Russia before and he's like you know after the us the fall of the ussr we had a good base we had a really good uh base of of you know scientists and mathematicians and and you know and and uh, an industrialists etc we could have built something really good but then putin he took 20 years to build this kleptocracy eventually the ukrainians are, are like you know we can either look west and we can look at these open societies and we can look at uh, you know, a model that we want to follow, or we can look to the East, and it's kleptocracy. Uh, so essentially, I mean, l- l- let me come back to the point, geopolitical point. When countries have geopolitical crises, uh, they will be anxious, and they will be aggressive. But a democracy is not going to fight in the same way as a, as a kleptocracy. A kleptocracy is going to think, you know what, let me just break something. And a democracy is going to think, you know what, this is, this is dangerous, we'll have to do something about it, but they're going to fight in a different way. But I, I, I would not dismiss the geopolitical element, it does exist.
0: So this reminds me of a couple of books I read about Russia and Putin last year. Um, Bill Browder's book, Red Notice, and Masha Gessen's uh, The Man Without a Face, which is basically about Putin's rise. And I remember it really struck me how different Putin was to a lot of other leaders, Um, Like, I noticed this while I was reading him, while I was reading the books, that he's basically, like, he he didn't come up through this governance kind of background. If anything, his character more closely resembles uh, a gangster or a mafia leader. Like, he's basically a thug. I'm often struck by that, uh, like, recently, that as I see, like, the way he speaks and the way he behaves on the world stage. That's basically how he treats people. Like, like he still is basically some kind of uh, thug rather than a world leader.
1: I mean, uh, I didn't read the, the those two books, so maybe it'll be useful if you if you give a little bit of background.
0: So, Red Notice is uh, like the the Putin story is a little tangential because it's more about Bill Browder's own biography, yeah. um, but it's the fascinating story of how he comes to uh, uh, Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union um, and basically becomes rich, but then runs up against the state um and it's like this kafka-esque story of um how they try and pin corruption on him to steal all his wealth um the man without a face is is more like a direct chronicle of putin's rise um and it kind of gives you gives you the background of what he was seeing as the soviet union collapsed how he reacted to it and kind of trying to piece together his his thoughts from like interviews he's given speeches he's given etc and and contextualizing his background and where he came from as a KGB officer to give you a feel of how he like how he felt about the world yeah. um because i see a lot of people kind of uh, trying to fit him into an ideological box being like oh he's from the soviet union uh but he's not like pursuing some kind of soviet communist ideology um because he isn't an ideologue he isn't uh, someone who came up through like yeah. the party or something he's a guy who's used to controlling people for power.
1: I mean, I, uh, the, the part about him not being an ideologue uh, really, you know, struck me because uh, I was actually listening to some of his speeches. Uh, I, I wanted to, you know, I wanted to know more, you know, if you give someone the opportunity, this is kind of like, reminds me of the Joe Rogan uh, model of podcasts where you have like a four hour podcast. The thing is, if it's a small podcast, you know, you, you're getting kind of, uh, very short comments from someone, they can, they can kind of choose the words carefully, but then if a four hour conversation, you really get to know them. Uh, and so I wanted to like go and listen to, uh, rambling speeches, like really long speeches. Uh, so I went and listened to a few of them. And the one thing that struck me is that, that, um, he doesn't come across as an ideologue. This is a man who was born... He's totally
0: devoid of ideology. I mean,
1: the thing is, what struck me is that this this was a man who was born and raised under the Soviet Union. And the Soviet Union is supposed to be very ideological. The fact that he... I mean, now that he speaks, he doesn't mention anything about communism. This man grew up under the Soviet Union, but he's not a communist in ideology at all. And that itself kind of tells me something about... How much people really believed in Soviet ideology or communism, you know, when it, it was at its peak, at, 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 in a, at the height of its power. It, this itself kind of. Can, can't you see how weird it is?
0: Yeah, it is quite strange.
1: I mean, uh, it's. And the thing is, he is an ethno nationalist, but in a very. I mean, not in an ideological way, it's more than a geopolitical way. And, you know, he does have this kind of very, uh, very rough, gruff kind of, uh you know, understanding of ethno-nationalism, but he is, you know, the, the, he, there is this kind of Russian ethnonationalism, nationalism And uh, everything he does is it's basically it's through this
0: that... uh, model of brute force, like whether it's how he treats billionaires at home, uh, it's by basically gathering them in a room and browbeating them live on TV in order to humiliate them, or whether it's through, you know, mm. how he deals with uh the people around him like his ministers or whether it's how he tries to deal with other world leaders like there's the, the really famous one with angela merkel where he, yeah. that she was, yeah, he learned that she was afraid of dogs so he bought a dog with him to scare her um like everything he does is how do i frighten someone or bully them or intimidate them or pressure them like yeah. push their buttons so that's the no thing. carrot I mean, the
1: thing about dictatorships the thing about dictatorships is that there is no institutional thinking, uh, so the, the the state becomes a reflection of the, ex, the the extremes of this personality who is basically leading the state. Uh, by the way, we, we talk about this uh, also in startups, like in commercial startups, that how the character and the you know the personality of this of the leader of a startup kind of ends up being kind of integrated and impregnated into the culture of the, of the organization, and that kind of sometimes it's difficult to to uh to remove uh interesting uh you know uh 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 what do you say reminder here um but i'm kind of you know normally our, our tarbush intergalactic tarbush episodes are not this uh this grim uh i think the fact that we might be 48 hours bef- you know uh, away from a major i mean by the time this episode comes out there could be a major war like a major war in europe like the biggest war, war since since world war II. i hope it doesn't come to that um but yeah i mean keeping in with the format and since we mentioned uh we mentioned joe rogan and for our podcasts i saw that you know you kind of had something about cancel culture in the uh you know in in, in your list of 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 things you want you want to touch up touch upon so yeah, what was
0: that? Um, it's just been uh, one of those things that you can't escape over the last two weeks. Um, you know, that kind of uh, crescendo of uh, shrill American uh, culture wars going on. Um, so I was basically, I, I can't remember what I saw, but I must have seen a few things about it. And I sat down to think like, what is, what is cancel culture? Um, what's this thing that everybody's so upset about? Because um, this idea that people are basically, like, I think the idea is that people like, get boycotted for saying something that goes beyond some uh arbitrarily identified boundary of what's acceptable to say and the idea is that this boundary is shrinking and shrinking um and obviously that's completely bullshit because uh there have been uh these kinds of boycotts of uh thinkers and activists for decades and decades is just that um for a very long time it was mostly the left that was affected by these things you know it was uh Radical black thinkers. It was the Black Panthers, or it was uh, liberation thinkers. Um, it wasn't the kind of people who can get cancelled and then go and complain and whine about being cancelled on the Joe Rogan show and on the front page of the New York Times you know, on their column or whatever.
1: So, wait, wait. you're saying that cancel culture or, or always existed, but it's only when it became when it targeted specific people who felt that they were entitled to the platform that's when. It you know they they start complaining. This is a problem. and This is a new thing. That's, really, not new that's thing. really the
0: vibe that I'm getting. Yeah.
1: Right. Okay. Uh, would yeah. You, I mean, would we, we come. Disagree? We, no, I mean, we come from a different. Of course, we we we. Uh, I mean, both both of us, me and you, we come from a different uh, uh, angle at this. You know, because you're right. I mean, we were kind of censored. Uh, you know, we were not really our voices, like ours, were not in the mainstream for a very long time. But then we never, we never felt. Unfortunately, I think we never really felt entitled to the platform because the, the platform were ne- was never unconditionally given to us. Uh, and so I guess we didn't really, you know, if you're not included, you are never cancelled because you're never
0: included in the first place. You know, I mean, if you wanna put it in a phrase some Americans might understand, maybe you and the rest of the Palestinian people got cancelled in 1947. <laughs> 1948. <laughs> you've been, you've, yeah. you've been trying to get uncancelled ever since. I mean, they're still
1: cancelling us. I mean, uh, not only it, it, it's not only the, the politicians now, it's also the algorithms and, you know, the social media algorithms, etc. Uh, yeah, I crazy. woke up
0: this morning and saw a news article about how they'd fired a museum director in Manchester, uh, basically because he had an exhibition which was deemed to be too Palestinian-friendly by an Israeli, pro-Israeli lobby group. It's
1: crazy because they're, they're, they kind of they're posing Palestinian liberation as equivalent to Jewish extermination. Uh, i mean the and i think that this is this is deliberate uh, in order to make this comp- more complicated than it has to be i mean in order to make this seem to be much more morally complicated than than it has to be
0: so yeah on like when i'm generous i think oh these guys just started to see that there's censorship now hmm. like it's their first time realizing it but i think a lot of the time it's not that it's just that they're outright disingenuous and it's because uh, I mean, a lot of the time it's because they're being subjected to consequences for saying things that are grotesquely offensive for the very first time. Previously, they could just get away with saying this openly and now like oppressed groups have the mic a lot more. and when they say something obscene, they get uh, quote unquote cancelled for it and they don't like that.
1: I mean I feel like I want to say a lot more about this, but then we came to the limit of the episode. so let's let's uh, let's save it to f- for the next conversation.
0: Catch you later. Thanks for listening. To support us, please leave a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also find the link to our Patreon in the episode description. See you next time.